Hello and welcome to another podcast edition of Taiwan Talk. I'm Keith Menconi. Taiwan's linguistic diversity can boggle the mind. It obviously includes Mandarin and Taiwanese, but then there's the less widely spoken Chinese dialect Hakka, and also about two dozen distinct languages spoken by the island's indigenous peoples. Now, obviously, you don't need to learn all those languages. Just speaking Mandarin is probably more than enough to get through your day to day. But what would it mean if you could tick off a few of the others? How would that change your perspective on life here? What kind of insights would that open up? Well, that's not just a hypothetical question anymore. Today on the show, we're going to be speaking to the founder of Glossica, a Taiwan-based company that develops audio-based self-study kits for languages around the world, and recently has set its sights squarely on the languages of Taiwan. Earlier this year, it released a kit for studying Taiwanese, and now it's working to release one for Hakka, along with kits for Taiwan's Aboriginal dialects. I spoke earlier with the company's founder, Mike Campbell, to talk a little bit about what he's hoping to accomplish with these projects. Here's our conversation. Mike Campbell, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. So, just so our listeners know what we're talking about here, uh, your language materials are maybe a little different from what people are used to. Uh, they're not like uh, a text with vocabulary and grammar rules. You've put together a huge collection of uh, sentences, and so the idea is people will learn these complete sentences. Uh, so, let's play a couple clips. This first one is uh, from the Taiwanese kit, so it's going to be the English uh, to the Taiwanese. Where were you born? All right, and then this next one is one of the indigenous languages. First, the English translation, and then the vowel. A bumper harvest. So this is a huge collection you've put together to help people improve their language skills. And uh, before the interview, I was talking with you, and you were saying to me that the idea here is not so much to learn the rules of the language or, or learn how to analyze a language. The goal is to help people improve their muscle memory, just improve their ability to use the language. Uh, so why do you think that that's an important goal, and, and how do you think that other people have kind of fallen short when they've tried to create textbooks and and, and like stuff like that? Well, I think. Uh, I truly believe that there are two ways that we can learn a language. Uh, one of those ways is an academic way, which means that we're storing more and more information in our heads, and that's something that we can think about and analyze and and you know talk about. But language is actually a skill, and so the other way to learn a language is by actually training that skill and training the ability to respond to stimulus in the environment. Like somebody says something, how do I? Respond to that, and you've you've created these already for many many languages around the world, and you're working on about 120 more. So we're talking about a lot of languages all over the world, uh, but you're also focusing on languages from Taiwan. So uh, why did you set your sights on this particular set of languages in Taiwan? What are you hoping to accomplish here? Well, I've been living here in Taiwan for a number of years now, and so uh, one thing that I like. For myself, is giving myself a challenge, um, and I think that it was a good choice to come to Taiwan because of its language diversity. I mean, I could literally spend my whole life here, continuing to learn languages, you know, to my heart's content. And there's really just so much there to learn from, and there's very little resources for them. So the challenge is is real. The challenge is if this language is not written. And it's just something spoken up there in the mountains, and they're really hard to find. You know, how am I going to find these people and talk to them? You know, what? Where do I begin? How do I? How do I master a language that where it's not like French or Spanish, where there's thousands of books on it and thousands of millions of people who speak it? 
that's the true challenge of and and so when when I figure out how to accomplish that, well, I mean, basically the whole world is open. Once I I figure out how I can learn a language that has no resources like that, then I can apply those rules and help other people learn languages more effectively, even though there's lots of resources for, you know, English, French, and Spanish, but I can provide them with better methods. And the resources that you're creating, they're being translated both into English and to Chinese. So uh, some of these students are going to be uh, foreigners, Westerners, speaking English. Some of them are going to be local Taiwanese. Why do you think that it's, it's important for them to have these resources so they can develop those actual you know, day-to-day fluency skills using these languages? Well, you know, there's a, a community out there right now, not just the, uh, the Taiwan Aborigines themselves, but also people around the world, linguists around the world, and, and people just interested in, you know, in human... Um, you know, human sociology or human human nature in general. And they think it's important to preserve languages because they they encapsulate a lot of human knowledge, which has been passed down for thousands of years, which could die with the language. And I I personally know of scientists that have come to Taiwan and and they've gone into the the Atayal tribe and They've learned the language and they speak with the the locals and learn everything about the botany and the biology and all of this this information that's locked into the language. And they find a lot of parallels with Latin nomenclature. They find a lot of, you know, the, the parallels with the scientific method. And then they discover new things that we don't know about in science. And it comes from you know, the, the knowledge that's locked into their languages. These are things that are not written down. They can't be found in dictionaries or encyclopedias. They don't have encyclopedias in their language. It's all an oral history. And this, these are languages that are five or 6,000 years old. So there's a lot of, a lot of information in there. And beyond those kinds of uh, practical benefits, why, why do you think that it's important that, you know, somebody who's studying either Taiwanese or, or, or studying one of these aboriginal languages in Taiwan, why do you think it's important that they, you know, their life is just made a little bit easier? It's made a little bit easier for them to uh, actually gain fluency in these languages? Well, uh, we have to go back to the idea of what is culture and what is, what is ethnicity. So, for example, if you're born and raised in a, in a family uh, that that comes from the Amis tribe in eastern Taiwan, and you grew up and you don't speak your language. And now maybe you grew up during a period of time where it was not encouraged to speak these local languages. But nowadays in the 21st century, the uh, there's a movement coming out with uh, where they're trying to promote all of these cultural things and, and the, the cultural identities of, of each ethnicity is more and more important. And so the loss of of that ability to speak your own language is is viewed as, wow, you know, if we can't speak our language anymore, we don't have a language, then what do all of our cultures and our customs really mean? Well, you know, one of the requirements by the, the Taiwan government and also by governments around the world is that, you know, we can give you recognition as an ethnicity, but you have to prove to us that your language is unique. You have to have a dictionary. And so that's one thing that a lot of the um, the tribes here in Taiwan have been developing over the last few years is you know, a full-size dictionary with at least 2,500 roots so they can qualify for status. And I don't know if, if you've maybe had an opportunity to uh, speak with somebody who, who who's 
kind of been able to get a stronger feeling for their own language, a stronger mastery of their own language. What does that change for someone to, what does that change about their relationship with their culture when they gain that mastery of their language? Well, number one, uh, they're able to pass down some of the, the their own cultural traditions in their own family, especially if they if they continue, you know, marry uh, within their own group. But the other thing that I've noticed is that one of the biggest changes over the last few years is that people used to be shy about uh, coming from a place where they speak an Aboriginal language or a minority language. Today, it's it's a source of pride. And so having that ability sets you apart from others. It's, it's, a, it's a point of distinction, a point of uniqueness, and that actually can carry along a lot of other benefits towards your, your life and your career. Well, now I want to get a little bit into the logistics of how you would even put this all together because some of these languages are so rare that only a handful of people actually speak them. So how did you go about uh, getting all of these sentences and, and choosing all of these sentences and getting this recorded uh, to make this material available in the first place? Well, I have to – all of that groundwork has been, has been done by the government through the publication of dictionaries. Um, if they're not published, then they're available in libraries or um, people have posted stuff online. The problem with this is that it still requires a linguist's um, point of view – to actually dig through the material, and that's where I come in. And also my, my knowledge of the international phonetic alphabet, how the mouth works, how pronunciations are, are done, uh, I'm also able to mimic the way these languages are spoken. So I'm not able to go in and uh, record all these languages uh, with native speakers. So for a lot of them, I'm doing the recordings, especially for things like Atayal and Thao and Bunun and Saisiat. Uh, so with with these languages, I'm actually doing the recordings myself. And then once we get some momentum, I might actually get some native speakers to come in and do some other recordings for other languages. So up till now, we've been mostly talking about uh, aboriginal languages in Taiwan. What about Taiwanese? Who who are the users that you imagine who would be interested in, in, in brushing up on their Taiwanese skills? Well, uh, we've had quite a few people look at our Taiwanese courses over the last couple months. And some of the responses we're getting from the the local Taiwanese people is that, well, do you have anything harder than this? This is pretty basic. I think I can understand, you know, most of this. But the thing is, I've worked with a lot of students over the years and turning what looks easy on the page into something that you can produce naturally from your mouth is two different matters. It might look easy on the page, but can you actually produce them naturally? So that's part of the challenge is, you know, well, you know, go ahead and take our audio and try to repeat along and you'll find out it is quite challenging. Even if you understand it, uh, can you produce these na- these sentences naturally? Uh, that's a really tough skill and it takes a lot of training. Um, now, the other part of that is that um, people have been asking us for advanced versions of Taiwanese for Taiwanese for business because apparently Taiwanese is used a lot in business meetings and stuff, especially, you know, all over the island probably more so outside of Taipei than other places, but it's it's still used quite a lot in business. And, you know, there's a lot of people, they go to business meetings and they don't understand everything that's being recorded there. And uh, I think some people in my company have actually mentioned to me that they've been to meetings taking notes and, you know, the new girl that at, at the company 
not taking any notes. And, hey, why not? Oh, I didn't understand what they were saying. <laughs> mm, so this can actually kind of cut you off to certain aspects of the business world in Taiwan. Yeah. And uh, w- w- what you were saying earlier kind of reminds me, I mean, I've had a couple of friends who have said that their parents make fun of them because their Taiwanese isn't that good. And so they might be kind of nervous to open their mouth and, and uh, use that Taiwanese. So you're, you're saying that basically this could take somebody who has, you know, a fair amount of exposure to Taiwanese and might be quite familiar with it, but it might kind of boost them to that next level where they're feeling comfortable producing that naturally and, and using it more. Yeah. And I think you brought up another issue that I have a problem with, um, w- especially with the uh, the local Taiwanese people and their attitudes towards the language, is that a lot of times the people who speak the language really well, they pride themselves in that ability and they don't want any other people speaking the language badly. And so when somebody does speak it, try to speak it, I should say, and they don't speak it as well as the um, proficient speakers do, they usually get, uh, you know, just like the, the, the person's parents were saying, you know, you, you don't speak Taiwanese very well. It's, you know, it's, it's really Dulian. Mm. And so the, the, the issue here, I think, is that people need to be a lot more encouraging of the people who actually try to speak Taiwanese instead of trying to put them down all the time. And so I, I kind of view languages around the world and in two different ways. There's a lot of languages that I would call closed languages where their attitudes towards people trying to speak the language are are kind of negative. And I would say that Mandarin is an open language where they're always encouraging people to speak Mandarin and, and learn it. And there's a lot of accents and variations. And so it's a really hugely widely spoken language. And so there's a lot of tolerance for foreign accents or other regional accents. But Taiwanese is not the case. Taiwanese is one of those closed languages where people's attitudes really have a they they they're actually killing off their own language because of these attitudes because it causes a lot of people not want to open their mouth not want to speak Taiwanese because they're scared of the other guy saying oh your Taiwanese is so bad you know the, this just needs to stop because um it it's causing more and more people to stop speaking Taiwanese on a regular basis it's, it's a vicious cycle it's kind of like that you're in the club or you're not in the club yes. kind of feeling yes mm. well getting back to that idea of uh, languages kind of petering out and dying. Now, s- one of the languages that you've been working on, Thao, if I understand it correctly, there's only five people that currently still speak that language, right? Yes. And so some of these languages, they're, they're, they're very, very, you know, on the brink of extinction. Yes. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about what's going on in Taiwan in terms of its linguistic diversity? Are, are what we're seeing right now is one language just dominating and, and the other language is disappearing? Is that the trend that's that we're going in the direction of? No, because you know there's a lot of government uh, support in this area, and so they're trying to support the languages equally and uh, with equal benefits. So in the Thao community of 300 uh, indigenous Thao, they have an elementary school where the language is taught on a regular basis. And so a lot of people are familiar with the language and the words and and things like this, but there are only five native speakers left. And there's one other uh, Chinese, uh, you know, I would say a Taiwanese person uh, who has learned the language and he's helped with the government develop the tests and a lot of the writing materials because a lot of the elders, they don't, it's too late in life to really sit down and learn writing skills and things like this. So uh, he, his name is Jian Shilang and he works with the government mostly in developing these materials and the dictionaries and all of that. So um, I'm probably the, the only foreigner and I have one other, there's one other person that I know of is also interested in learning the language. But I think that uh, what I can do 
uh, by producing our materials is let people know. I know that people are not, are not going to be interested in learning a language that only has five speakers, but um, the fact that we can do this and that we can provide these materials and produce them worldwide, it basically brings awareness to the issue. It brings awareness to, wow, this language is a fully-fledged language. It's not some sort of primitive, you know, like just grunts in the jungle. Mm. These are these are languages with full grammars and sometimes more complex than English or Russian. And they have long histories. They have lots of oral traditions and they have huge amounts of vocabulary. So you've actually managed to learn a, a number of these Aboriginal languages. Um, what, what is that experience? You know, we've already kind of went over why somebody who is from this culture might want to learn these languages. But for somebody who's not already in that culture... Uh, you know, you're one of the people who's actually had that experience of, of being somebody from outside the culture who goes in, learns the language. What do you feel like you get out of that experience of, of learning a language uh, that so few people know? One thing is I'm not trying to attempt to become an insider in their culture. I'm not trying to go in and try to, you know, secretly understand what everybody's saying. Because, I mean, it's not a language that they're actively using all the time anyway. It's just something that uh, for the sake of language acquisition for me it's a challenge i like the chance of being able to meet people face to face and actually be able to use the language and it's not a point of pride like i'm trying to show off but um i like to to find that opportunity to be able to use the language and so the elders that i actually know like kilash he's willing to sit down and tell stories in his language and i can ask questions and i can ask well what's that mean and you know and he'll explain it and and it's and it's a really nice experience to be able to hear him tell stories and I can actually understand everything that he's saying, almost everything. And, and I can follow up with questions. He'll explain it. And, you know, this is, uh, this is a really fascinating experience. And so I, I have a personal preference for Thao because I like the, the way the language sounds, the way the, the, the words are assembled and, and the grammar and how it works. And I think it's, it flows nicely off the tongue, you know, versus some of the other languages like neighboring uh, Zhou language, I think is, is really ties my brain up into knots uh, because of the sound system and the and mm. the grammar that's involved with it. But I, I really have a, this this personal preference for Thao. I just I just like how how it works, and I like how words can be created from the roots that you know, and and how you can express in the language. I think it's really it's it's fun. It's like these people create their own languages called conlangs, but this is actually a real language mm. that has a history. And it's sort of like playing with a conlang, that something that somebody invented, but it's actually real. And you can actually go to the place and visit the people, eat their food, and and use the words and and talk to them. And and I think it just brings brings it so much more to life. And I think that if a lot of the um, these enthusiasts, these uh, language enthusiasts around the world, they they try one of these Aboriginal languages, you know, over a conlang that they might think is fun to play with, they might actually. Um, bring out a lot more enjoyment out of it because then there's only that small group of people who actually know the language and they can kind of speak in their own secret language and that's kind of fun for some people now i'm going to throw the same question at you just from you know a foreigner expect uh, perspective we've already kind of covered this from local taiwanese perspective but from a foreigner perspective what kind of doors does being able to speak taiwanese open for you but you see taiwanese is a is a pretty widely spoken language not just in taiwan it has about 50 million speakers worldwide and so that includes a lot of people living in thailand malaysia philippines and also uh, in europe and and the us so what taiwanese does is um, despite all of its dialects and variations is that 
it does give you sort of that inside, like we were talking about earlier, uh, with uh, with that group of people. And so if you are doing business with somebody from Southeast Asia or from Taiwan, being able to know a few words, and, I, and actually the Singaporeans, I've noticed, they're using a lot of Taiwanese vocabulary in their um, online discussions as well. Just stuff that'll just come right out of the air and, wow, that's exactly like Taiwanese. You know, the, the sounds that they're writing out. And so I think if you're in Singapore, if you're in a place where there's a lot of business being done with Chinese people and they're not Cantonese, uh, the, the most like, likely language that they're speaking between them is probably Taiwanese. Now, in places like Italy and Germany and, 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 the, and the Netherlands, you're probably going to run into Wenzhou speakers from the other side of the strait, on the other side of uh, Taiwan. And that's the majority of the the overseas Chinese in Europe. And mm. we actually have a course coming out for Wenzhou. It's supposedly the secret language of China. So we're going to unlock it. <laughs> <laughs> mm. So in terms of getting uh, these things actually recorded, I understand that for a group like the Thao, you're kind of relying on an older group. It's it's maybe uh, 90-year-olds a lot of the time that are, are speaking this language. Uh, and, and, and so does that pose any problems as, as you're trying to work with them and get the stuff recorded? Uh, with this group, actually, the government has um, – they have a, a regular, uh, I would say, a schedule set up with particularly Kilash, which is the man that I know best as well. Uh, he's a really, really positive person, and he's always really willing to help, except that because of his age. I think he's 92 or 93 now. Um, he needs a lot of rest, and he can only do it certain hours of the day. And so with their schedule, they have everything lined up in advance, like if they need recordings from him. And so he has done a lot of recordings, but it's, it's, it requires probably the, you know, the, the budgeting of a government to really, you know, and a team of people to have to, um, to, to get these things and work around his schedule and make sure that he's comfortable and not being overworked because of his age. Uh, so can you help us give us a sense? So some of these languages are, are, are down to so few people. Can you give us a sense of, of how that process actually happened? Because obviously earlier, you know, there w- would have been lots of people speaking Thao, speaking these other aboriginal languages. Why are there so few now? Okay, so particularly with the Thao, uh, how could a, a population – I mean, if you look at a population of 300 people who are using a language all the time, we would say that this language is not in danger of dying out. Why? Because it's vigorously used, even though the population is small. So population numbers does not equal the the strength of a language. Some languages have a lot of speakers, like Taiwanese, but it is in danger of dwindling. Uh, You know, other languages only have 10 speakers, but it's strong. You know, so numbers don't exactly always, you know, uh, tell us the the real truth of what's happening. But with a language like Thao, why is it dying out? Um, Over... All of the men in the village, they usually marry women from the neighboring tribe, from the Bunan tribe, just over the hill. And so it's been a long, a long, long custom and tradition. And so when these Bunan women, they come into the village, they obviously don't understand Thao. It's a completely different language. And so the common language in the household becomes Taiwanese, which is the, the, the preferred language of the area. And so what happens is that the, the language of choice in the household is Taiwanese. The children grow up learning Taiwanese. They seldom hear their parents speaking their own languages. Bunan less, Thao sometimes with activities within the village. But, you know, that's that's pretty much it. A lot of what we're talking about today is, is keeping the use of these languages fresh and alive. Uh, what do you think that that changes about a country 
you know, like Taiwan, to have all of that linguistic diversity in it. I mean, if it went into the direction of only having Mandarin or, or, or losing some of these languages, what would that change about Taiwan and the character of the country? Well, l- let me first start off by saying that Taiwan is the Urheimat, or the original homeland for all the Austronesian people all over the world. And what that means is that since the languages of Taiwan have the greatest diversity in the language family, the Austronesian language family, um, they have the longest history, five to 7,000 years. All of the languages that branched out, basically there were small groups of people that started leaving Taiwan uh, about 3,000 years ago. They settled into the Philippines. Then they settled into Indonesia. Then they went out to the Pacific and they spread out across the Pacific. And then eventually to Hawaii. About a thousand years ago, they they reached Hawaii. And actually, some of those groups even went all the way to Africa. So Madagascar, the language spoken there, very similar to Paiwan language in southern Taiwan, Mm. amazingly enough. So Taiwan is is the homeland for for about a thousand languages that have spread out across all these islands, Mm. mostly on islands. And so when Taiwan positions itself as a leader... In the in the world, as uh, with uh, language recognition, uh, with the the endangered languages and language preservation, when it positions itself as a leader in that field, then it becomes a leader of all of these island nations all over the Pacific and elsewhere, where they where Taiwan can set a good example because Taiwan has the the money, the budget, it has the resources, it has the people to make all of these things possible. And, you know, I just happen to be here as well, and I'm bringing an, another method to the table as well. And I think all of these things play together in making Taiwan that original homeland and place of expertise on, you know, where everybody from the Philippines, Indonesia, Madagascar, all the way out to Hawaii, Tahiti, Samoa, they can all come into Taiwan and learn about language policy, uh, how languages interact with their local governments, and how you deal with the local peoples. Now, all of these issues are, are things that are talked about regularly in all these other countries. We've been speaking to Glossica founder Mike Campbell. Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. For our language learners out there, as we said earlier, Glossica is releasing material for new languages all the time. For Taiwan languages, the group's already concluded its study course on Taiwanese. It's also releasing the indigenous language Thao, and its Hakka course should be coming out pretty soon. You can learn more about the company and their most recent releases on their website, glossica.com. Thanks for listening to Taiwan Talk. As always, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's program. You can leave us a comment on our Facebook page, the ICRT blog, or rate and review Taiwan Talk on iTunes. This helps us bring you the kind of shows you want to hear and makes it easier for other people to discover the program. For ICRT, I'm Keith Menconi.